Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to talk about systemic racism and injustice in the entertainment industry, particularly towards black writers and industry professionals, as well as practical ways that each of us can and should be part of the solution. And to do that, we are joined by the three chairs of the WGA West Committee of Black Writers. We're joined by Michelle Amore, whose credits include the feature films Playing for Love of Boys and Men and the TV pilot The Honorable. We're also joined by Hilliard Guess, who has written for Sci-Fi's Deadly Class, Ease We Got Issues, and is the executive producer of Ticker. Hey, Hilliard. Uh, And we're also joined by Bianca Sams, who is a playwright and TV writer with credits on Charmed, The Originals, and Training Day. Uh, Hello to all of you, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Excellent. All right, let's get started. So the three of you recently penned an important open letter to the WGA, which we'll link to in the show notes. So we wanted to invite you onto the podcast to discuss this and your thoughts on the issues facing black writers in Hollywood today. Would you mind briefly going over what the letter was about and why you felt it was important to put that out into the world? So this is Michelle speaking. I have been the chair of the Committee of Black Writers for four elected terms, which means for the past six years, I've been in the position to empower, increase visibility, and create career and networking opportunities, which is our mission for Black writers. So I I need to preface it with that, that we've been working really hard doing everything that we can to move those numbers and really give Black writers a shot. And we can do no more by ourselves. It's finally at that point where we're saying, okay, we've done all we can, and the numbers are only moving ever so slightly and not in ways that we would like. So the statement really came from that. It also came from, of course, everything that's happening in the world. COVID-19 put us all in a lockdown situation where everybody's home and you're able to feel more uh, of the things that maybe you didn't always think about. And then within the Black community, of course, we're seeing that the COVID-19 crisis has really raised awareness about a lot of the inequities and the things that we suffer from just in general. It's just highlighted all of those things. And then when George Floyd was killed and the nation pretty much erupted, our industry issued statements. And I was really surprised when I started seeing, you know, Netflix and CBS and different companies start speaking out, especially given the history. And I also want to add that I'm also an educator. I received my master's in fine arts from UCLA in 2014. And I'm a professor over at Loyola Marymount University. I've taught at UCLA, AFI, Cal State Northridge, and Chapman. So I knew that I wanted to go forward with a statement that not only informed people about what we felt was happening, but to put it in historical context. And so that's where you have the reference to course, for the nation coming out in 1915 and where we are today. And so part of it is, yes, we appreciate these statements, but at the same time, we cannot move forward until we have an honest assessment of where we've come from and where we are today so that we can plan a real course of action to move forward into the future. We don't want this to be something where Hollywood's like, oh, let's throw a bone to the Black writers for now because we're in the hot seat. We really want to see some change, which will require intention, right? It's not just something that you say. It's like, you, you said it. Now, what are you going to do to show it? And you can actually do so in real actionable ways. And so to that point, what are some of those obstacles that face uh, Black writers in the industry, especially uh, television writers? 
there are a lot of them. I mean, we can go on for days, but just a few. There's a gap in earnings that's across different platforms, which we all know, whether it's corporate or entertainment, we still have gaps in how much black writers earn on, you know, to the dollar, as well as when you think about black women, again, you add that to regular things, being forced to repeat staff writer, for example, or other positions multiple times is another issue that constantly comes up a lack of in-depth tracking of hiring retention and recruitment. So it makes it very difficult to create strategic plans if you don't even know exactly what's happening. There's a lot of career stagnation, like I said, particularly at the staff writer level, it's problematic because staff writers don't get script fees. So if you're at staff writer four or five times, that means over those years where other people are getting you know, more money put into their pension or more money put in their healthcare or more money put in their pockets to be able to really endure times like right now where a lot of people aren't working, that's not happening. There's also a lack of mentorship and just overall deals for writers who have been in the industry for a while. So you know, we were literally looking at overall deals and how many black executives, agents, people behind the scenes who really get to make decisions and also at the showrunner level. Because we've seen that, you know, when you have black showrunners or showrunners of color, those rooms tend to be more diverse, which means, again, more people of color can be hired and lower recruitment. So there's a lot of other things that I could list, but that's, I think, a good place to start. Something that I think really crystallizes this point. Between 2016 and 2020, there were about 6,210 writers that made any kind of money in TV. So that's drama, comedy, variety. In that same time period, 2016 to 2020, there were only 451 Black writers that made any money during those years. So if we, we look at that, right? And if you think about the fact that Black people are about 13.5% of the U.S. population, right? But we make up about mm, 7.8% of the guild. There's about what, 808 of us. In that same time, if we just had parity based on population, that would mean probably 902 writers would have made some money between those same years. And so as we look at this, we're looking at not just what's happening now, but what's going to pay happen in the future and questioning why if we have 808 people working in a union, we still don't have some of these parity things looked into. And although we are primarily a TV writing podcast, the disparity between hiring of black writers and the feature space is also huge. I don't know if Hilliard or Michelle, you want to speak to that as well? It's bloody ridiculous. Like I said, Bianca's our stats person. She's got it down to the T. But I can just tell you as somebody, I know myself and Michelle, and I, I, Bianca, you do film too, right? Am I correct? Or you just do TV? No, I do both. I was trying to find those numbers. Right. I'm, but I'm, I mean, I'm out there in the mix with deals going on with big companies, with features and with TV pilots and shows and stuff. Do you still get these walls up about people being afraid if you have so many black characters? And, you know, it's just funny, even today, how much we have to go through things. I just had a, a conversation with a big producer the other day about a project that I wrote that has a similar, there's another movie that apparently may be coming out. And I'm like, so what? You know, you can have 10 Holocaust movies, but you can't have 10 black films about this thing. That's ridiculous. You know what I mean? I literally said that to the huge, huge executive. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I'm like, dude, you got to be kidding me. I agree with that completely. I remember I wrote a script 
years ago called Ladies Night. I mean, it's just a fun comedy, you know, black women go out and Girls Trip came out and they were like, oh, you'll never get yours made now. And it's ridiculous because it's two totally different experiences, two totally different sets of stories, women. And, and yet you're told that all the time. And it's frustrating when you work so hard. I'm sure as you all know, I mean, when we create content, we're creating from a pure place. You know, we're telling the stories that we want to see. We're looking at images that we want to see. There is nothing like, you know, representation. It's like nothing like seeing someone who looks like you up on that screen, whether it's the screen in your home or the screen in the movie theater or your phone. It's a beautiful feeling. And when you're so used to always seeing your own image as a white person, you just may not understand how devastating it is to not see yourself in these spaces. And every year you hear the, oh, it's the first time in history they've had this and I'm so over it. Yeah. If I can speak to that as well. I mean, it's also interesting to me that it's not just for us, right? These are images and stories that are being put out around the country and around the world. So if we continuously see only certain types of narratives about people of color, black people, black women, it's not just staying here, right? It's going internationally. And if we don't make sure that we are changing the narrative about how, particularly since we're, this is what we're talking about, Black people are perceived, it has ramifications around the world. Like I've gone and I've like done exchanges in London and the things they will say, right, from our music, from our TV shows to me, and sometimes they're positive, but oftentimes they're not. It made me understand how important film and television is and like somebody who comes from being a playwright and now moving to TV that was actually one of the big reasons I thought about making that shift because in a play I can only deal with you know the people who are in the theater who have paid to come and see it um, and that has become more and more rarefied but in TV you're in people's homes you're on their phones you're on their planes and it's just as important for the little black girl to see herself on the screen but it's also important for other people to recognize that a black woman can be a therapist or have anxiety or that a black man can, it, 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 like we, we have to really change and alter the narrative of where we are on the screen because it has real effects in day-to-day lives of everyone. I just want to jump in and say quickly, last fall, I taught in Budapest, Hungary for a semester and my husband and son were with me. And as a black woman teaching in Budapest, you have to know like that was pretty fascinating. And when I walked into that classroom and these students were like, whoa, but when I left teaching those students, I got hugs and love. They were like, you're amazing. We loved you. And I was the first black woman that they had seen. The only thing they had to reference was television. And they were saying like, oh, we watch this show or that show, but we've never known you. And so that's why in the statement where we said that due to birth of a nation, right, Hollywood set into motion storytelling practices of either exploiting and villainizing Black people's experience for profit's sake or completely excluding us from stories altogether. And so, you know, this is a, a big thing. And I also want to add, I'm a parent. You know, it matters to me that my kids get to see themselves represented in a variety of ways and in pure ways. I want to make sure that when I'm gone from this place that I've left it better for them. And there's such power in the work that we do and to be able to create in these very stressful spaces sometimes, it really does kind of take away from creating purely. If you're always thinking you have to be worried like, oh, this won't be accepted or this won't be believable. And to touch upon what Bianca mentioned about anxiety with my show, The Honorable, which sold to CBS last fall, I've had many discussions about 
anxiety with this mayor. And I had an executive say, well, but she's a strong woman. And I said, yeah, she is strong. But have you ever heard of Tony Soprano? He was a mobster and he killed people and he had anxiety. You know, this big mobster dude can have anxiety. Why can't a black woman who's the mayor of the most corrupt city in the world, which is Chicago, which is where I'm from, why could she not have anxiety in dealing with her job? And it's those little battles that we fight every day. And on that topic, especially looking at how the stories get executed, uh, especially on television, uh, what are some of those problems that black writers face when it comes to the stories, uh, especially in the context of a writer's room? Uh, Obviously, you touched a bit on representation in the room, but how sort of does that influence directly into the making of those stories? I mean, I'll speak to that from my point of view. I think that we get caught up in being the one person in the room who has to be the voice. We're already concerned about our jobs as they are, you know, and then we have the other thing to now worry about, about being the voice of the fourth and fifth character on the call sheet. It becomes a lot of pressure. And for those who don't know how to handle those situations, it can become pretty bad. And I've seen and heard many different stories. For example, I know, Bianca, you could talk about this too. If you're a lower level writer in a room and you're supposed to be the voice of the number three or four character on the call sheet who's a black woman or a black male, and you voice your opinion about something that they're going to do in the show, and your showrunner is like, well, I don't think it's that bad. He or she could still overpower you. And so my problem is there's nobody of power in the room who has the veto, if you will, over these things. And that's what I'm seeing is a big problem. Sure, they bring in a staff writer just to say that they have a person of color, but they don't bring in the upper level, mid-level writer who can have a stronger voice. And to me, that's, from my point of view, one of the problems that I think. I'm sure Bianca has been in a lot of rooms. She's got a lot of stuff. (laughs) Thank you, Hilliard. Yes, there are so many things that one could talk about. I mean, yes, I think there is a part of being in that position if you're a staff writer, but I think no matter where you are on that you know, ladder, there's been several instances that I've also been the only person of color at all. <laughs> and it was almost a position where you're forced to be the one who raises their hand for any problem, whether it's your community or not, where it's okay, this is a stereotype about Asian people or LGBTQIA community or this or that. And, it, and, and sometimes it feels like you end up being the person who's constantly poking holes in the boat instead of really getting to also champion other stories. And you can be ignored as the constant naysayer, but you've been placed in the position where no one else is speaking up about something. So then, you know, your job becomes a very different job. You don't just get to be there and talk story. There's a little bit of that. There's also issues of either latent or blatant racism that happens in the room and sexism as well that happens in the room that people either ignore or don't deal with or tell you're being sensitive about. And there's no way, particularly if you are in a lower position, to fully change that nature. You can stand up for things, but then you might be considered difficult, or you can write emails, or you can try to bring people to your side. And even with that, it's not saying that they're completely untenable situations, but it does make it very difficult. There's also the extra added pressure, particularly if you are the only, that you know that you, A, don't get to fail the way other people in the room will get to fail. You will not get the second chance. But you also have to think about the person who's coming behind you. There's so many times in rooms where you know people have said, like, I might be one of the first people they worked with who was like a Black woman, which is kind of crazy. Or you realize that like, oh, we had one of those. 
right? And sometimes it's not even about the writer. It can be about the directors. Oh, we had a woman director before. That didn't work out. And you recognize that like, if I'm in a room, I'm not just working for me. It's going to be the person who comes in after me, right? That has to deal with whatever, you know what I mean? Impression I made or didn't make on the people I'm working with. So it's multi-leveled in some ways. And I think a lot of times it's more covert or latent stuff and biases that come out that are really difficult to handle, but you do your best and you, you know, make the best of the situation, but it, it can be a lot of different things coming from a lot of different places. So what can your fellow writers, whether showrunner or co-EP level or even mid to lower level writers be doing to uh, support black writers and not perpetuate these problems? But in the room, particularly, I mean, so many things there are people who have been really great at either supporting and echoing or amplifying. I think amplification is something any and every writer can do. If you see, you know, a female writer or a black writer is constantly giving pitches and no one says anything when they say it, but then you say it as if you're a white male and suddenly it's brilliant, you might amplify and be like, oh, as Bianca was saying, or as Michelle was saying, or as Hilliard was saying, like just minor amplification means that you can show that you are listening. Also allyship. There are times when I did not have to be the one to say, okay, hate to be the one to say it, but you know, but there are times when people have said, okay, this is a trope, like the magical Negro trope. And it was amazing when I didn't have to be the person to say it, right? When other people were doing the work necessary to call out issues instead of making it the situation for the people of color in the room to be the only one speaking out about it. So I think those are like very minor, easy, anybody can do things. And I think there's also very much looking at the structural systematic ways in which these people, me included, um, or we're in this community being placed in weird positions that other people are not. And I think advocacy, when you're in a place of power and really being able to leverage that for people who don't have your privilege or power is important. So I think on the just day-to-day scale, those are some great things that I hope that my fellow writers will start doing. I'd like to jump in and say, we are part of a union. And so you know, one of the things that we can do is train and educate in our union. And I think that, again, I'm an educator and what I'm seeing on the university level is a need to retrain or a need to go in and say to professors, for example, let's look at unconscious bias. Let's be very specific about anti-racist practices. And the union can do that. If you are a co-EP, EP, showrunner, then you should be required to take training just like they do for safety, just like they now do for since the Me Too movement and you're talking about sexual harassment and assault. It should be a part of the, it, again, we need systemic. It's it, it's not okay to trust one or two showrunners to do it. It needs to be something that is just done. I mean, as we know, as human beings, we rarely do anything unless we are forced to. Most people are complacent. They're fine with the way things are unless they're hurting or there's some kind of pain that causes you to make a change. It's just a fact. And so ultimately, I'm pushing for something that's going to be across the board. I think that it's part of, like Bianca said, the responsibility when you're in that power seat. And that's for all of us, period, so that we can all come in and have a better understanding of how to handle these situations. And we have to accept point blank, we're going to be uncomfortable. There will be some uncomfortable moments. There will be awkward moments. But if we really look at them as teaching opportunities, then we can actually 
get past. Like yesterday, I was on a call with several women from the guild and we were just discussing different issues. And I got into a heated discussion with a white member, but it was good. You know, we hashed it out. And at the end, we both felt better about the conversation. We both felt better about our positions. And we agreed that we wanted to continue working together. And I think that's the key. You have to be willing to be uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for us, you know, to even be having these conversations, for example, even in this space in 2020, right? To say we're demanding our equality. Um, and I just want to say something was funny. You know, this letter went viral and I read one of the comments in Deadline and somebody wrote anonymously, of course, this reads like a ransom note. And I said, yeah, pay up. I mean, we deserve to be treated with the same respect, dignity, and we deserve to be compensated for the work that we put out there as well. So. Yeah, no, I think that it's something that can be done individually, but asking people to say, hey, go read this book on this or go do this and you can send out information. But that's, again, trusting the few people who will just naturally do it versus it's just a part of how we all learn if you want to rise up that ladder. And I think that the companies then also have to institute true hiring practices that reflect the writer's when you look at parity in this country and also in the world, I mean, we're a global industry. So part of that is saying, well, how many people should we have in a room that look this way or that way or speak to this experience? And I also have to say, you don't just need black writers for your black characters in a television show, right? You, we can write about them as well. And that's the other thing. We're so pigeonholed and it's frustrating. Just like I read the autobiography of Malcolm X when I was a child, I read the diary of Anne Frank. Just like we read, you know, um, Harry Potter, we also might read a book that's very unique to a Black experience like, you know, Invisible Man. Like we read and we watch everything. We have to watch every white version of something. And then we always watch our Black version. And when I teach, I have so many white students who have never seen, you know, Boomerang or Friday or Color Purple, like they have no clue about our content until they take my classes. And then they're like, whoa, I didn't even know Malcolm X was such a cool dude. I thought it was just some racist black dude, right? But again, it's education. We, we need to do a lot better. Now, you've just touched on this uh, a little bit, but looking at especially the, you know, the guild negotiation, all that stuff, what do you feel are elements that the guild should be working on to support black writers? We've been doing this for years. A couple of years ago, I drafted a um, plan and gave it to the board about the Rooney rule in the NFL and how I think that the only way we can really change our industry is if there were um, a Rooney rule instituted in Hollywood. And, you know, for those who may not know, it's a rule that simply states for all of the NFL teams that they have to interview black coaches. Period. They don't have to hire them. They have to interview them. They have to make an effort to go out and find these individuals. And as a result, it has helped so much so that they're now going to institute a Rooney rule for women in the NFL so they can try to get more women as coaches and in those types of positions. And so what I was suggesting a couple of years ago, I was told they wouldn't even look at it, meaning the other side. So this year, I'm told that the board does have the Rooney rule on the table again. And I'm really hoping that our statement and what's happening in the world, it really forces them because it's basically for them to sit down and make decisions and say, okay, what are we going to do? Again, they can look at the universities that are making changes across. Like our university's president, he said, we're going to institute real changes to improve hiring 
in, you know, with faculty, staff, and also bring in more students. He said, but also in all levels. And that's important in all levels. Don't just bring us in at the bottom and then say, oh, look, the numbers went up. Like Bianca touched upon earlier, we need to see writers who have overall deals. We have writers that have been in this industry, Black writers for 20 years, you know, and they've proven themselves and they still don't have deals like that. We need to see our shows on the air and not just continue to, you know, pick up something here and there and then they just don't get made. It's like make an effort. And also I want to add a lot of these networks, you know, they built their stations or, you know, they, they built their companies on black shows like Fox and UPN back in the day. And then once they got to a certain level, they just kind of like, oh, okay, we don't need you anymore. And that type of practice needs to also be called out. It's like, you know, black people watch a lot of television. We actually probably, I, I think, I don't know all the numbers, we watch a lot of television. We also drive Twitter. We decided that we we didn't want to celebrate Trump's birthday, so we made it Obama Day. Like we're just like really cool in that way. Where we'd be like, hmm. And I feel like if somebody could figure out how to make Black Twitter a thing, a show or something, that would be kind of fun. But again, it's like look at those numbers and look at the amount of content that we watch. It's like why would you not want to give that audience content, especially when you look at someone like Tyler Perry who has created his own brand. And yeah, everybody doesn't like his content, but look at his numbers. I mean, the man's a billionaire and he appeals to people who, again, want to see their images, right? They want to see themselves on the screen. And specific to the current negotiations as well. I mean, for me, it was really exciting. There were several things that I thought were really exciting. One was script parity insofar. I mean, I I hope it passes. We don't know yet. Script parity, you know, across platforms because I've worked in network and I've also worked in digital and it's not the same, right? You can write the same script for the same length, but you're not paid the same amount for script fee. But also particularly important for me, even though I'm no longer in that position, is script fees for staff writers. I repeated staff writer four times. I was asked seven and I had to keep saying no until someone said, yes, we'll give you to the next level, right? And so I know personally how much of a difference it could make to get that script fee. So I think it's really important there. I thought there was also a really great thing, again, about fees for teams. I know quite a few people of color teams because I didn't have a writing partner. I had no idea of whether film or TV that they split the exact same fee. Like there wasn't a higher amount they were being paid. If they were both staff writers, they were both splitting in half staff writer fees and paying their agents, their managers, all these different people and the government, you know, out of that same pot. And I thought, okay, wow, that literally completely changed my mind. And so I think just on the financial piece about uh, building wealth and about, again, the ability to sustain in difficult times, making sure just those things, I think, could make a vast difference for so many people. And what do you think that producers, studios, and networks can be doing differently and changing in their practices to, to help support this cause? Well, we talk a lot about this. We have lists. This is another conversation that can go on for a long time. But, you know, Michelle was talking about this a moment ago. It's about hiring, you know, more people who look like us, because we all know that when you do, you know, in essence, you hire your friends, you know, and if your friends don't look like you, then you're not going to hire them. That's really the truth of where it all comes from. And you look at a lot of the black shows, for example, or the shows that have black showrunners, and instead of one black writer, there's six or seven of them, and maybe one or two white writers on the show, on most of those shows. The problem is what we're trying to get to is a point where black writers are 
running shows that aren't just the black characters on them. That's the myth that we need to break. You know, when we can cross over that threshold. Michelle was also tackling this earlier. You know, I say this all the time. We live in your world. You don't have to live in ours. So to assume that we don't understand you or can't write you is the craziest thing in the world. You know, people always ask me why do British actors and Australian actors and South African actors, how can they nail our accent? They're overconsumed with us. It's easy for them. So imagine for us, we're overconsumed with you. How do you assume we can't write you? You know, no matter what genre, no matter what it is, we can write you. You know, we live with you. I want to say in our statement, we were pretty clear where we said that we want them to implement forward-looking project development and staffing practices, including attracting, developing, mentoring, hiring, and retaining the next generations of diverse writers, directors, producers, and executives. And the reason why we specifically also included directors, producers, and executives is because as a Black writer, when those people are not also looking like us, we have a tendency to not still get opportunities, right? So Spike Lee talked about when he went to shop, she's got to have it. And every room he went in, it was all white and nobody got it. And he went to Netflix and there were two African-American women who were executives in powerful positions. And they were able to say, we get it. We totally get it. And then his show was on the air. And that's Spike Lee. If Spike Lee is saying, I walk into a room with this proven record of success and I still am told like, eh, we don't get it. Like, we don't get it. It's like, it's constantly telling people, well, this is my you know, particular black experience. And because they don't know it, they're like, we don't get it. And it's frustrating as hell because it's like, it doesn't matter to me that you don't get it. What I do know, there are 42 million black people in America alone. And there's a lot of content that could be created for this particular generation. Look at the movie Spider-Verse. I mean, when you look at that film, it's like you have this black boy image and it was hugely successful and everybody loved that film. And like Bianca touched upon earlier, it's not just important that black children, for example, see black images. It's important that everyone see black children in these heroic roles. Like It's so empowering. It's so life affirming and it really does change you. But here we go. Let's just talk business. At the end of the it's dollars and cents. Black people spend $1.2 trillion a year. We really do spend a lot. Like we enjoy our things. We enjoy entertainment. And because we do have 10 times less net worth, a lot of times we may not be able to take that fancy trip, but we're going to go to the movies. We're going to take our families to the movies. We're going to have cable, uh, Netflix. We're going to have all the little services at home because we do enjoy watching our content. And to me, that's just dollars and cents. And also a study done by UCLA, it said that when you actually incorporate other people of color, Black, Latinx, Asian American in your content, you actually make more money in advertising and you also get more money in office dollars. So you look at a franchise like Fast and the Furious, right? It's probably the most diverse franchise in history and it's made billions because when I go with my son, we get to see ourselves reflected in Ludacris or Tyrese. We get to see ourselves reflected. And that's what I think the industry needs to really look at. Like, get up off your butt and do your research and actually say, oh, from a business standpoint, it actually makes dollars and cents to make sure that we're making this a part of our company. And because I want to push back on this idea of, oh, but if they do that, aren't they just forcing an agenda? I don't care if that's how you have to describe it for yourself. But at the end of the day, you know, we look at everything in 100%. 
So then you say, okay, 100%, how about for every, you know, 50% of every project we go out, we must interview, meet with, you know, writers of color. And of that percentage, a certain group has to be African-American, Asian-American. Like we get that specific. It, then if you're at the top of a company, that becomes a part of your culture. And you're like, you know what? We have to make sure that we're also giving these consumers what they want. And so to me, that's not ridiculous. It's like, duh, it makes so much sense. Uh, what I love about Monichelle is saying, and, and the thing for me that I, I'm, I'm constantly talking about is numbers, right? When you are interested in something, when you put your focus there, generally speaking, you have to be able to quantify it, right? You have to be able to look at it. You have to be able to assess it. You have to be able to forecast what you think is going to be in the future and issues that might come up. If you're not looking at the numbers, if you're not really tracking, and I mean really tracking things, we were talking yesterday with someone who was talking about it in terms of baseball, right? Like all the metrics, all the things that, you know, that they're looking at. If a player is doing well at bat, but like having a problem over here, then you know at practice that we need to be working over here. And they're able to spot issues quicker and faster because they're able to just look at what has been happening in track records. And for me personally, I know trying to get numbers either from the guild or from the industry is very inconsistent. They definitely spend a lot of time lumping everything together and everyone together as a way to kind of, I would say, obfuscate some problems. Like when you ask, okay, well, what are the numbers for Black writers? Well, the people of color, no, I said Black writers or Black women writers or Black male writers or LGBTQIA writers. If you're not really breaking things down and you're kind of lumping it all together, you're not able to actually see what issues might be happening for some subgroups than others, right? And, and there is no one size fit all or band-aid that you can put on it. And I know that sounds scary, but the reality is all these numbers already currently exist, you're just now looking at them from a different lens and really digging into them because I don't think there's any kind of change moving forward if you're not strategic about the kinds of changes you're making. If you just think, okay, I'll do this program, that'll be great. Maybe that program isn't the problem. Maybe the problem is over here. So I personally think whether it's the guild or the industry at large, there is going to be a need for strategic change and to put your mind on these issues in a way that isn't just, I'm going to tick off boxes kind of counting way, but really look at it the way you would in baseball or your golf swing <laughs> to improve it, to figure out what are those micro things we could be changing that make huge differences in the future. Yeah. And I just want to say when we wrote the statement, what's crazy is I had to actually get one set of numbers from the WGA and then I had to go to UCLA to get another. And it was specifically the part about the film numbers. So the WGA said, I think it's 81% of white writers get all the film jobs. And then they said, you know, and then the rest go to people of color. So you look at that, you're like, well, I mean, that's cool. It's like, no, I went to UCLA and they broke it down by race. And that's where we got the 5.6% number. And, and so she brings a good point. Why are we not getting all the numbers broken down because if we self-identify, for example, I sold my show to CBS last fall and then they didn't take it to pilot, right? But then BT bought it. So I sold it twice. And so to me, you have that information because you have my contracts, right? And so because you know that I sold it, then you could say, okay, this African-American writer, she sold a project twice. You know, you can even say it's the same project, right? But two different sets of contracts. And that's what we want. We want the numbers so that we can go sit down with the studios, with the networks and say, okay, this is what you've done so far. And then out of the shows, for example, that you buy, how many are on the air? 
how many people have their created by. Because it's one thing to just parade out Shonda Rhimes or Kenya Ferris, but guess what? That's two people, right? And we need to see it across the board. And I want to also add one of the reasons why I didn't even try to get staffed. One, I wanted to teach, and that was very important to me as I was building my teaching career alongside. I knew that I wanted to create content. Some of us come into this industry for different reasons. I had very specific things I wanted to say, and I really didn't want to even fight and deal with that whole staffing and, and the whole stress of it. So when I sold my show, you know, it definitely was a great feeling. And yet I still know that there are challenges even at that point. But I immediately, you know, as, as you sell a show, you come in as like year one, I'm co-executive producer. You know, my contract says, if we get year two, then I'm, I'm an executive producer and I could even run my own show. And that to me is where you have power. And like, I've been encouraging our writers to create more content But also, let's just be honest. I mean, everyone may not want to run a show, right? It's not just about, oh, for me, it's not even ego. It's like, do you have the mentality to want to not only oversee the artistic vision of a a story throughout seasons, you know, but do you want to manage people? (laughs) Do you want to be the person that has to say, no, we can't do this or yes or whatever? And so I think, you know, that's why, again, the training is so important and being very clear because there are a lot of people that have built their careers by working on other people's shows and they've been very pleased with it. Right. And so to me, I think it's just really about getting people uh, like Bianca said, you know, at the high levels, it's like working at a company. You don't want to come in on the bottom and then you never get to be at the top, even if you don't ever get to be the president. Right. You still might want to be the vice president. You, you want to earn a nice living for your family. Just like we said, you know, the numbers show that our net worths are so much less. So these are all things that consume Black writers in Hollywood all the time. So when you see a video of George Floyd being murdered on video, that hurts us to our core. I mean, you can look at it, you know, and say, wow, that's really sad. But when George Floyd called out for his mother, I'm a mother. I sobbed, right? Like that to me is so devastating. And so part of it is, I get we talk numbers, I get we talk business, but we also have to look at our humanity. Like what kind of people are we? Who are we? So even though we're saying Hollywood, we want you to look at those numbers. We also want you to see us as your fellow brethren. It's like, can you not see me? The color of my skin, does that really prevent you from seeing me as you see yourself? And that's what we're really up against. And that's why images are so powerful because when you see someone, you know, that doesn't look like you, um, you know, what are you thinking? Again, I, I, I lived abroad last year, you know, being black in Budapest, you stand out, you know, but I will tell you this, we were looked at in curiosity, but we didn't have that same sense of hatred or racism that we dealt with here. And my son was able to go all over and travel Europe and he's 16. And you know what? I didn't worry about somebody killing him. And I mean that because they have a police system. People aren't walking around afraid and tense all the time. And it was really an incredible feeling for us. Yeah, there are other issues and no place is perfect. Do not get me wrong. But I'm saying we just didn't have this burden of the original sin of America, which is, you know, racist. So I feel, you know, we're asking several things of people, but if someone is not willing to, again, be uncomfortable enough to admit what they've done wrong, then it's harder for us to, you know, get them to do that. But we can demand that we be treated with fairness. And to 
Michelle's point, there's also a normalization of images, right? Like how many times have we seen on TV, whether it's a cop show or not, the normalization of brutalization of black bodies, right? Like how often do we see police brutality, whether it's on a brown body or not, coercion, torture, any of these things being normalized, right? How often have we seen just negative stereotypes that are also now playing out as well in society? And then you flip it and you could also say, look at how changing the positive you know, versions of these things can also normalize things, like normalizing LGBTQIA identity marriage, you know, and how that shifted when TV also shifted or movies also shifted. I think there is a way in which we also forget about the power of an image and the power of the word, especially in TV and film where we're in people's houses, right? So, and not just here in the States, but globally. And to me, that's why it's really exciting that like, if we, if we think about this in dollars and cents, but also think about it in power of shifting narratives for ourselves within this industry, but also shifting narratives around the world and what can affect real people's lives that, you know, it shouldn't take a real human being being murdered on tape for nine minutes for us to think, Ooh, that's wrong. Right. Like maybe we should not. Right. So we we do have to really think about also the content that we're creating and, and how we tell those narratives and repercussions of certain narratives on communities. And in addition to narratives, do you feel there are some maybe positive examples of companies or individuals taking those right steps to right the inequalities that Black writers face? I mean, I will say for myself, I mean, and I would love to see more, but in the last year I was having a conversation. I I don't have a kids, but I have nieces and nephews who are, you know, coming of age in a very different time than even me. And I don't feel like I'm that old, but when Netflix had in the last couple of years, done this effort to have lots of different types of content with black leads and the strong black lead image when they had all of these people in a picture and having conversations with an 11 year old or 12 year old who watches Netflix, right? But having that image scroll across the screen and how powerful that was for them, right? And the idea that we have sci-fi with black people, we have rom-coms, we have this and the just sheer amount of complexity that some of these shows have has been super exciting to watch. And I, I've been hoping that other networks would start really leaning into that. And the same you can say in film, right? When you see Black Panther and the seismic change, you know, that that that, that sort of ushered in. I mean, I'm sure there's still people who are saying Black movies don't make money. And they definitely underestimated what they thought that movie was going to do. But it made so much money and it blew things out of pocket, right? You would see the month before it came out, you know, how people were talking about it. And then the later people kept being surprised, surprised, surprised. And then you have girl strip, you know, you have all of these things coming to session in like blowing box office expectations. My hope is that people are really starting to see, you know, not just the narrative of, oh, it's only a national thing. No, this is international as well. People are ready. There are black people all over the globe. You know, the, I was watching an ITV segment this morning, actually, and it was so amazing to listen to their stories and how powerful these Black Brits are, you know, in different positions who are out doing the Black Lives Matter in Britain, right? And talking about how impactful it was for them in Britain as children and as adults to see Black content from the States coming their way. So it is amazing, you know, all the, the things that, like the impact it has, not just here, but like how content is happening abroad. And some of them were talking about how BBC started doing more 
Black content by seeing some of the Black content coming out of the States. So I think the ripple effects are so important. And I've been very excited about just seeing that the diversity of stories that can be told, you know, that somebody might not tell me that my Black sci-fi thing is not marketable, right? Because we've seen it and we've seen it at a high level. So I think it's really opening doors to the types of content we can tell and the types of shows we can be on. And to me, that's just glorious. And I'm very hopeful because I think this generation, this new generation Z, I think they're pretty dope. I think they're super talented and smart and they are demanding that we do better. I teach them and my son is one of them. And so I know firsthand they demand diverse content. They demand equity and fairness. And it's really incredible to see these kids from all different socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, coming out to protest and to speak up. And I think that, you know, we look generationally at what's happening. And I remember years ago, I think somebody said, you know, all oh, the old races just have to die off. It's like, yes, yeah, but it's some younger ones. But I will say that I think the collective body that we're seeing that we're creating entertainment for, right. Um, they're, they're just demanding it. You look at a great show, like, you know, sex education on Netflix, which, yeah, some of it is a bit idealistic, but it really does portray this very diverse world of teens and in different ways, right? Not just black, white, but everything. And it deals with, you know, the LGBT community. It deals with full figured people and dark and light skin. And, and it's really fascinating. And I do feel hopeful we wouldn't be here if we didn't believe in the power and the goodness of what we can do in this industry. And so despite all that, I want to be very clear, we're optimists, you know, we're optimists who are demanding to be treated with the same respect as everyone, but we are here because we do believe. And so I think that speaks to where we see ourselves, you know, ultimately going. I was was just going to piggyback a little off of the original question that Alex asked was, I was just thinking about you know, who are those allies that we may have right now? And I was thinking about where Bianca was going, you know, the, of course there's Netflix because we see so many things immediately, but I was also thinking about like HBO and stars. And I don't think we give BET enough credit, you know, and I've been a victim of that in my past where I'm starting to see, you know, that the quality of work, like them buying even your project at one point, you know, like they've really stepped up uh, in my opinion, like the, the level of quality has went up. But I was just thinking about stars and, you know, what they're doing with 50 Cent and all these spinoffs of power. I mean, this is one black man who's taken over this whole network pretty much, you know what I mean, with his show. And there's some black women there, too. But I think I was saying Courtney Kemp created the show. So, I mean, we get that it's a 50 Cent G unit, <laughs> but it, it's Courtney Kemp. Right. 50 Cent doesn't write. So I totally hear what you're saying. Well, we also need, and, and this is an example of we have to still make sure because writers, we are behind the scenes and a lot of times people don't know. So there is, you know, the belief that, oh, that's 50 Cent's show, but it's really Courtney Kemp's show. And thank you for saying that, Hilliard, because like I am loving American Soul right now on BET. It is so much fun. There are so many shows that I have enjoyed over the years. So glad you said that. I think I was just going on to like, okay, you know, we watch BET. Um, but I know people who didn't even know BET existed or like what it does. Don't they just do the soul trainer work? You know what I mean? So I think, you know, when you think about main, I'm doing air quotes that can't nobody see, but like, you know, mainstream, it's like, who are those allies who are stepping out of their normal box to also include us? And can I also mention, since, you know, my show was recently bought by BET, what I'm excited about, I'll be honest, when I walked into that room 
with all of those Black execs, with my team, and my team consists of Stage 29, which is Dr. Phil's company and CBS Studios, I felt so comfortable. And you know, it was really nice to not have to explain everything. It was nice to say things that they totally got. I remember we said something like make a dollar out of 15 cent and somebody said a dime and a nickel. And like, we just all laughed. Like we didn't have to explain. <laughs> you know, that was like a tribe called Quest, baby. It was like, yes. And that it's that feeling that we often don't get in other experiences. So I am really excited about this um, relationship that I'm building with them. And they also have the BT Plus, uh, which is their streaming service. Here's a good example. Like one of our writers, Felicia Mary, she started out, uh, she was uh, staffed on 13 Reasons Why. And then she went over and she created a show on BET and she was, you know, co-executive producer her first season. And they hired, I think, nine black writers. And I think one white writer, she was hired. And then season two, she's running her own show and she hired a brand new set of writers. And that's exactly how it works in our business. You give a black writer an opportunity and we're going to go out, especially if it's a show about us, we're going to look for voices, of course, that can reflect our experiences as well. But we can still do the job What is what I'm saying. Like she was able to step into the role and she's been like, you know, just doing really well. And so when our numbers increase, they're increasing because of the advancement within like somebody saying, Hey, I love what you're doing. Let's do this. And we just need more of that. We need more companies to do like what BT did, which is to take a writer in and say, Hey, and her first season, for example, she had a showrunner who trained her. He helped her with her process and knew that his whole objective was to train her so that she could run her own show. And it, again, that's what we also need to see more of. It, it shouldn't come from, if I help you, I'm going to miss out. It should be, when I help you, we both can succeed, right? And so that show who helped her last season, he's now running another show and she gets to run her own show. So we need to see more of that from within our union, from writers who take us under their wings, so to speak. And that's been my experience with my show because Ali Leroy, he is my co-creator. That's the exact thing. He's like, okay, we're going to get you a show and then get you up and running and then I'll go do something else. And I think that that can also be something we can really look at, maybe how to set that up to just have more showrunners bring in writers and again, train them. Because that's the key. We talked also about being unprepared in our statement because sometimes we are unprepared. And then when we fail, it's like, see, we gave you a chance. It's like, yeah, but you knew we weren't prepared. And we might want the opportunity, but the question is, and that's where the union can come in and make sure that there's showrunner training, that it's consistent, that you can go, and it doesn't just have to be only at certain times, but something that could be set up where you build a relationship with, you know, maybe a mentor, mentor with a showrunner who can bring you to their show, let you sit in that room, let you go to the set so you can train and have the experience so when you're doing your own thing, you're ready. Well, on that topic, I mean, what do you feel that agencies and management companies can be doing to address these issues as well? I always make the comment about walking around, you know, one of the top four agencies that I was with and literally passing 12 offices before I saw somebody of color and then passing another 12 before I got to my white agent. You know what I mean? So I think that says a ton right there. They need to hire more black agents. They need to, again, in their own system, say, okay, if we want to attract black writers, 
at one point, Charles King was the top black agent in Hollywood and everybody wanted him, right? He was it. And now he is, of course, the CEO or president of Macro. And so when you think about that, why was there one black agent? And to me, that's a big problem. So they need to clean their own house and really look at, again, who do we have that would go out to find? Because there's nothing like a white agent reading your work and not getting it because they're like, yeah, I I recently posted an executive wrote a a very bad review about Boys in the Hood as a screenplay. And they dogged out John Singleton. They talked about popular was da, 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 da. And they were like, this doesn't feel believable because it was a white exec who read Boys in the Hood and he didn't get it. But then Stephanie Elaine, she read it and she got it, right? She's a black woman. She goes, woo. And she helped John Singleton's career launch because a black woman read his script and she loved it. And then we, we got Boys in the Hood, right? And that's what I'm saying. It's like, we need to revolutionize hiring practices. They have to make an effort and say, and recently uh, um, somebody sent around the board members of all these companies and they're all white. So again, it goes from the board all the way down. It's like, if you don't have partners in your agency that are black, you're part of the problem. If you don't have agents, if you don't allow agents that, you know, rise up through the ranks or you come in and you, you know, you find them, it's like, make the effort. You know, if CAA were to say, I mean, again, we know our situation with them currently, but if they were to say, hey, we need to hire 10 black agents in the next two years, they can do that if they wanted to. They just don't want to. They could do that in like a week. Right. Every one of us are out pitching our shows right now, right? Whether it's on Zoom right now or before, you know, the Rona hit us. We are all out in these large conference rooms, you know, at at all these big places. And it's usually one black person sitting there who's just sitting there. They might as well just be taking notes. And I always know when I walk in and me and my producing partner will literally tap each other on the leg like, see, they have no voice. You know what I mean? And that's the problem. They're putting some of them in some rooms, but I feel like they're like, oh, let's call in Jenny down the hall and bring her in. And she's got nothing, no idea what it is, which we're even doing. Just so it looks like, you know, see over at this company, we do a lot, but they never even speak. That's how you, you gave it away. You know what I mean? They need a voice. They need power. Across the board in all different aspects as well, when it comes to agents for actors or directors for editors, for music. There's so many different aspects of making TV and movies that like having people there to dramaturg for you, which for me as a theater person, again, we always had these very intimate relationships with our other co-creators. You know, it's just a part of that process. And so it's interesting when at least people being, even if they're not people of color, but, but being versed in what they're doing and knowing that part of their job is being a dramaturg. So if you're doing my play and it's about you know, a jazz musician, if you as my sound editor don't know jazz, then I'm gonna need you to go out (laughs) and listen to some jazz and do some research. So when you come in, you have the ability to add to. And I think, you know, on all different levels, whether it be agents, managers, you know, having people of color in those suites, but also having them actively be recruiting and looking for people who can also speak to these other cultures is really important, right? And like asking white editors to be more (laughs) fluent in, you know, our movies and films too. And like some of the different ways in which people tell different stories. You know, we have this very Aristotelian way of telling stories. Nobody's interested as much in circle structure, which is huge in like black cultures and other indigenous cultures, right? You know, like different versions of storytelling you know, we, we lose a lot of different things by having our stories in general told in only one fashion. So I think for 
for me, it's like if you have people with different points of views, it just makes everything better. It makes everyone's work better. So I'm hoping they do that too. You know, when we released the statement, we at the end said, you know, have your people call our people. And we still haven't had anybody really reach out in a way that we feel satisfied. We've definitely had executives and, you know, showrunners and different people, but I feel like we're still looking for, you know, that response uh, that feels um, as if somebody's really doing something because we don't want this opportunity to pass. And then we look up and then we're still having these conversations 10, 20 years from now. And that's, that's one of the things that we will be working on going forward. Um, Again, gathering more data so that we can then present because the thing is this, we are coming from the side of the oppressed and it's frustrating because we can still only do so much, right? We don't have the power to, make these changes on the studio network production company side. And so we do really need them to come to the table and to start engaging everyone. Since we've released our letter, I think I've seen 10 more letters and that's all fine, but we do need to see some action and I'm hearing things. I mean, we're seeing things in the news, but it still should be a respect of let's sit down with black writers or black directors and, Let's really see what we can do. Like to me, that would be bold. Like it's one thing to issue a statement, but I love for Netflix to say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna sit down and have a forum and bring you all in, and it can be virtual, and everybody will get an opportunity from each group to share, and then we'll tell you what we're planning to do." Because it's not enough that I'm hearing. We, you know, I heard the other day that you know someone from a major corporation is planning to make substantial changes among all of their writers' rooms. And so we'll see, but it's, again, we're waiting to see what they're going to do, right? So, and I get we're still in negotiations. And so part of it might be, you know, them trying to get past the stage before they really say anything, but the time is now. It's like, we really need for you to make these changes. We really are, again, we've done all the work we can as a committee. Um, We've hosted over a hundred events in the past six years, panels, workshops, different types of events where we, you know, invited people out and again, all sticking with our mission of empowering, increasing visibility and creating career and networking opportunities. And so I just want to also thank you all for allowing us to come to your platform because it really does help us in those areas. I know we had a lot to say. I want you to think that we're just, you know, not appreciative at all because we really are. And we really just want to see things improve for us, for Black Americans, like we said in our statement, our ancestors built this country. So we've earned our spots here. And this idea that we're less than in any way, shape, form, or fashion, it has to be stopped. We are not less than. And that's why our statement opened that we are Black Americans. We want all of our rights. We want all of the same privileges. We want justice and liberty. We want it all because we deserve it as citizens of this country that we think could be great. It's not great, even though some like to say it, but we believe that it could be if we were all given the same opportunities. Are there any resources that you would like to recommend to our listeners, whether that's industry resources like writer lists, educational resources, even you know organizations that uh, people could donate their time or money to? A lot of information out there. Here's the thing. Honestly, the same way people look up anything else, they can simply Google how to be a better ally. They could Google systemic racism. Part of Again, our frustration is not only are we saying, you know, get your foot off my neck, then it's like, now we got to tell you 
why you need to take your foot off my neck. And I think it really is up to the individual to make that decision for themselves to simply, when I want to learn something, I simply look it up, right? And I think everyone has access now and they can look it up themselves. There's so much information. I mean, you know, you can look up black organizations, you can look up Black Lives Matter, you can look up the NAACP if you'd like. But ultimately, you know, I think it just requires you to step out of your comfort zone and just start looking. You can start at any number of places. I don't think there's any one answer. Yeah. I do think that it's just making the effort. The other day, a friend reached out and said, what can I do? I said, the same phone you use to ask me what you could do, get on that phone and look at Google. What can I do? You can actually say, what can I do as a white ally? And it will give you a thousand resources. And so that's what I'm saying too. I don't want to tell people exactly what you have to do. It's like, but I think if your heart's in the right place and you start looking, you will find, right? It's like seek and you shall find. Um, because in the meanwhile, we're still over here. We still have the foot on our neck. Like, yeah. let's be clear. You know, we're still asking for Brianna Taylor's murderers to be held responsible for her death. And she was asleep in her bed, right? And so we're dealing with those while we're trying to deal with that. Not to mention, we're still Americans. So we're dealing with the fact that the COVID-19 cases have surged. Like everything that everyone else deals with, we deal with too but on a more pronounced level. I have a friend, she lost five cousins due to COVID-19. Five of her relatives have died. They published yesterday that one out of every three or four Black Americans knows someone who's died from COVID-19. And so again, we have so much on our plate that it's also exhausting to expect people who we assume are reasonably intelligent enough to even come and ask a question that they can't figure out how to then research it and find their answers. And again, I'm that parent that will tell my kid, look it up, right? So let me be very clear here. I'm not trying to be glib. I'm saying, look it up, look it up. How do you do that, mom? Look it up. So I'm asking everyone to go out there and and do their due diligence. Or just listen. I mean, Michelle, you also, even before this, you gave like five or six examples. We all have kind of have mentioned different things, you know, that we researched and used, like the UCLA one or Color of Change, or there's so many out there, you know, just that we mentioned in the last, you know, however many minutes we've been talking. So it's not that hard to find things, you know, there's lots of videos, there's lots of stuff, there are reams of things and lists that other people have already made. I believe what didn't Shonda Rhimes, I think, put out a list as well. And like, you know, you look at any of our Twitters or any of our Instagrams, you know, there's plenty of stuff there. I mean, there's so much information out there that we look up ourselves. You know what my favorite thing is, Nick? That I always tell everybody and people are always surprised because it's not an industry thing. And, and Michelle will preach this all day and so does B, is support black industry. You know, instead of going to buy your burger down at McDonald's, there's a cool spot over there. You know what I mean? Instead of, you know, going to get Chinese food for today, go get this. Whatever it is that you eat, change it for the night. Those little things add up. You know, just start it with that for me. You know, support black business. You know, all that. I think that's a huge one. That'll help. On that note, we'd like to thank our listeners, but we'd especially like to thank our guests, Michelle, Hilliard, and Bianca for joining us. We know it takes a lot of time and emotional energy to keep having to re-explain your own oppression to everybody every time. So thank you so much for willing to come on and, and talk about that with us. Thank you so much for having us. This was amazing. Thank you. Great. And you can get all the show notes for this episode, including a link to the open letter at pptmelco slash 181. As always, I'm on Twitter at tvcalling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. And do you guys like to plug your social media handles? I'm at Hilliard Guest on Twitter and Instagram. 
You can follow my show if you like, Screenwriters Rant Room, on Screenwriters RR on Twitter and all that stuff like that. Thanks again for having us. So I'm Michelle Amore, and I'm Michelle Amore in all spaces, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just a warning, I'm very political, and I said what I said. I'm not going to uh, give it to you with a chaser. <laughs> <laughs> this is Bianca Sands. I am at Right Sands Right at both Twitter and Instagram. That's W-R-I-T-E-S-A-M-S-W-R-I-T-E, not Right R-I-G-H-T. Uh, so Right Sands Right at both Twitter and Instagram. Excellent. Uh, if you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And uh, next week, while we're talking about that debate, TV staffing versus TV selling, and Michelle probably has opinions on that, but uh, we'll be talking about that next week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you all then.